Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles to optimize human performance. On today's episode, we have Adam Matusi, SNC coach and researcher for the Royal Ballet, where we find out just how the greatest ballet dancers in the world physically prepare for their performances. People don't normally associate strength and conditioning with ballet. However, elite ballet dancers have an intense rehearsal and performance schedule, which can consist of six to eight hours per day of training and practicing. That is a serious number of jumps and landings. And if the dancers are not physically prepared, the risk of injury or poor performance increases. In this episode, Adam gives us an insight into how elite ballet dancers train, what the common injuries are, and how he physically prepares all the dancers to ensure peak performance. As always, follow and share The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube. Head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. So here is Adam Matusi. Hey, Adam, how are you? Good, thank you, Phil. Thank you so much for coming on The Progress Theory. I've definitely wanted to get you on this podcast for quite some time because I just think your job is incredibly interesting and not only that I've had a number of students ask when you're actually going to be on the podcast as well so uh, you're in demand mate we need to give the public what they want. (laughs) Well thank you for having me on I guess it's nice that people are asking for it nice that there's an interest for it. Yeah yeah well you're an SNC coach for the Royal Ballet and one of the main reasons I really wanted to discuss this topic is I think a lot of people don't realise that the Royal Ballet or different dance dances get SNC support. And I mean, the discussions that we've had and the research that we've done, you really understand just how important it is. And so it would be great to see your experiences and get your ideas on SNC support for ballet and your research in that area. Before we delve into that, do you want to give a bit of an overview about yourself? Yeah, sure. FNC coach at the Royal Ballet. I've been here for six years. I'll talk to that in a moment in terms of kind of what those years have entailed. So I started my SNC journey at St. Mary's University. I studied a bachelor's in strength and conditioning research there. And then along this time, I did a, a bunch of different experiences and whether that was student support at St. Mary's. So got involved with the rowing team there the Women's Rugby Union, and then the Men's Rugby League. I also worked with the Harlequins or London Broncos now scholarship squad at the time. Did a bit of stuff with London Welsh in my final year. And then along this time as well, I I actually did my degree over four years. I was really into weightlifting. So it's part of the degree program, as as you know, because you teach on it. Mm. Um, The major component is teaching the students how to weightlift because it's really important to have an understanding of the movements yourself if you're then going to go away and teach them. So I ended up getting really into weightlifting and 
joining the weightlifting club at St. Mary's and progressing in this, I guess, reasonably quickly and, and made it into the GB talent squad and, and then eventually into the GB senior squad and along the way won a couple of competitions as well, which was pretty cool. So I just wanted to say, because you competed on the European stage, didn't you? Yeah, I guess that was kind of like the peak of my career. I competed in the European under 23s and came seventh, so it wasn't anything particularly special, but it was pretty cool to to represent GB. Mm. I I think I snatched 131 kilos and clean and jerked 165 at 77 kilo body weight. Yeah, big numbers. So before the categories changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were I remember, right. Not compared to some of the guys there. <laughs> I remember watching that online. Like we all watched it at the university, all the staff members, because we knew you were competing at that time. <laughs> I remember, I think you sent me some videos through on uh, on WhatsApp or something. Yeah. Some photos from the stream you were watching. Yeah, what you couldn't see was that all the seats were empty. <laughs> it looked like the Olympics nice. from where we were where we were watching. Yeah, it felt like the Olympics to me. Mm. <laughs> so I was like pretty heavily involved in weightlifting throughout that that my undergrad as well. So whether that was coaching around the university or some of the weightlifting sort of clubs I was involved with with the coach at the time, and then with the GB setup as well, I did a little bit of helping out with the sort of Paralympic powerlifting team as well when we had training camps. So that was pretty cool. And then when I finished my undergrad, the sort of natural progression for me was to go into my MSc, which was in sports rehabilitation, also at St. Mary's University. And I was fortunate enough to get a graduate assistant position there at the same time. So like half my time was spent lecturing on coaching science, sports science, degree programs and S&C. And then the other half was doing my master's. So I did that for just over a year, about a year and a half, two years, I think it was. It felt really short period of time actually for a master's, but that was great, really useful and, and really helped to facilitate my S&C development, I'd say. And then it came to a point where I was looking at what, what was going to be next. And it was either try and go into applied practice a little bit more or go into lecturing full time. And I think there were some sort of opportunities around S&C and sports rehab at the time at St. Mary's, which I was seriously considering. But I did want to go and do some applied work first um, before I went and did some lecturing. So I was looking at what the landscape had to offer at that point in time. And I kind of just stumbled across this role really with with the Royal Ballet. And I, and I didn't understand it at all. I'd never been to see a ballet, no background in dance whatsoever, but I just put together a, a CV and a covering letter. And I think I even drew some comparisons with like weightlifting and, and ballet at the time, but I, I'm not sure that they particularly made much sense. But anyway, it seemed to do the job because I got an interview and, and then was successful in getting the role. So I did that for a year, full time. Um, at that point, the actual contract for sort of sp sports science or dance science, S&C, whatever you want to call it, was held by a third party. I wasn't actually employed by the Royal Opera House. So the, the contract is tendered. So that company actually lost the contract at the end of that year. And funnily enough, St. Mary's gained the hmm. contract. So I can't actually get them off my CV at the moment. Mm. And so they gained the contract. And at this point in time, they actually put the Royal Ballet School into it as well. So then it was the Royal Opera House and the Royal Ballet School and reapplied for my role and was successful in getting it. But it, it just slightly changed at this point so then I was 50-50 between the Royal Ballet School and the Royal Ballet Company and I did two years in that capacity and, and that was really cool as well because at that point in time the sort of medical services at the school were, were really like exploding they had gone from having a, 
um, sort of one physiotherapist and Pilates instructor and some personal trainers to then, I guess, what we would deem like a, a really sort of high performance setup where they then had multiple physios, a healthcare manager. I was the first SNC. They had a ballet rehab coach. They had their Pilates instructors, performance nutrition. They had their counseling and have since moved into like also performance psychology as well. So, so like the team just exploded over sort of a year or two, which was really cool to be a part of and help to to pave the way, I guess, in terms of like what their profiling looks like, what their SNC setup looks like. And and that's all led now by Matthew Lamarck and now McSweeney. And they're doing like some really cool work. So like Matt's done some great research with his MRES looking at training load and adolescent ballet dancers and, and Niall's now doing his PhD. And I think it's like looking at peak height velocity and, and adolescent development. And I mean, you'll know better than me. I think mm. we're one of his supervisors. <laughs> yeah, he's looking at um, sort of athlete screening, how maturation affects that. And I'm sure we'll get Niall, yeah. on, Niall on this podcast as well. Nice. Yeah, cool. So yeah, I did, did two years in that capacity and then have since gone back full-time with the Royal Ballet. And in the last year and a half, I would say, started my PhD, which has kind of just been growing in the background from an interest in trying to understand what is actually going on behind the scenes at the Royal Ballet and with every other ballet company in the world and understanding how the casting works, how the performance schedule works, what their working days are like, like what the demands of ballet are and I think part of that was inspired by like seeing Joe Shaw, who's currently doing his PhD in training load at the Royal Ballet and, and what or just quantifying workload in, in professional ballet dancers. And like working with him alongside that, like really pushed me to take the plunge and and start mine really, which is kind of more orientated around injury and jumping in ballet. So just got my first paper looking at injury epidemiology and in ballet published in the BJSM, which is pretty cool. And then another paper, Systematic Review, has been accepted as well. And, and we're just now looking to process some of that other data. So I think, yeah, I think that takes us up to present day. It sounds like such an exciting team to be a part of. I love it when I head down to see you at the Royal Opera House. Every element that you describe, nutrition, psychology, SNC support, rehab, every element seems to be done really well over there. So it must be such a great learning environment to be part of. And it does sound like you encourage each other on, especially the relationship you have with Joe Shaw, him doing his PhD and uh, training loads and yours is in a similar area. There's definitely some competition which just elevates you both. It's just a wicked system. Yeah, I, I definitely feel fortunate with the setup. I mean, like not only like have I got a really good working relationship with Joe Shaw, but also like feel really lucky to have like a great supervisory team. Like everyone feels included in that. But like the wider team in the ballet healthcare is just so nice to be a part of and everyone just gets on so well and we all appreciate that there's more than one way to skin a cat and it's nice going into these interdisciplinary meetings and like actually listening to each other and showing respect to one another and appreciating each other's expertise and, and sort of all having the same goal at heart and, and moving in the right direction together. So I feel really lucky where I work and it's just such a great environment to work in. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's start having a little look at what actually happens at the Royal Ballet. Because I remember when you started your PhD and I started to learn a bit more myself about what goes on. And I was just completely shocked at how much rehearsing those athletes do. And then I was like, okay, Adam's providing S&C support. And I'm like, when does he have the time? Or when does the, when do the, the ballet dancers have the time to see him? And I know, you know, it's a very 
uh, thin balancing act to try and match up everyone's schedule so they can get the support that they need. So would you be able to give an overview of what a typical week would look like for a ballet dancer? Yeah, yeah, sure. I guess like one of the first things to do is give a nod towards like Joe and, and some of the research he's doing. So he's just released a preprint on a manuscript he's written, which is uh, investigating what the actual ballet schedule looks like. So what does a, a season at a professional ballet company look like? Because there's all the research up into this point that I think the longest piece of research is about three weeks. So our our understanding of like what ballet dancers are actually having to go through you know, physically, but also like occupationally as well, is like, it's pretty poor. So unless you come from that environment and you just inherently understand it, it's quite difficult to grasp exactly what it is they're doing. So that's actually, um, he's going to be looking to publish that in, in due course, which I would encourage everyone to have a look at. So with that in mind, like a typical week, it can be quite varied across the different ranks. So I don't know if it's helpful to mention that You've got like a hierarchical structure to a ballet company where there's different ranks and those different ranks will have slightly different roles to play in the company. So at the Royal Ballet, we have our ranks range from apprentice to artist, first artist, soloist, first soloist, principal, and then you've got principal character artists. So the apprentices... They're the top dogs. They are yeah, the principal The, the principals artists. are the top dogs. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Not the print. No, the well, the principal character artists. They do more less physical roles and more artistic based roles. So it's the principals that are probably considered the top dogs. I would say. Okay. So you've got yeah. yeah, like the apprentices, the artists, and the first artists who make up the corps de ballet. So they do all of the ensemble and and like the big group based dancing. And then you've got the soloists and the first soloists who are doing slightly more featured roles. And then yeah, the principals kind of the star of the show, so to speak. There is some research that has investigated like the workload demands of like these different ranks. And we know that typically these more senior ranking dancers will have like higher intensity days, but they'll do less in a day typically versus like some of the more junior ranking dancers who will have probably more filled in their day, but each of their rehearsals will be potentially less demanding. So how this actually plays out on like a day-to-day or a weekly schedule is they could have anywhere between like 20 to 30 hours a week of dance-related activity and that could run from Monday to Saturday. And then, so they all start their day with um, something called class or ballet class. And it's kind of like a, a bit of a weird in-between where it's like w- widely considered like at the warm-up of the day, but it lasts about 75 minutes. So it's not just like a physical warm-up, but it's like a, you know, them getting into the musicality and you know i would also consider it a technical training session as well because they're practicing and executing some of the key skills that will feed into like some of the rehearsals that they'll go in later in the day and then even the performance if they've got one that evening so that's yeah about an hour and 15 minutes and that will normally be around 10 30 in the morning and then after that they'll go into their rehearsal schedule and worst case scenario like the sort of busiest time they could have is they could have six hours of rehearsals from 12 to 5 or 6 p.m potentially just pretty much back to back with small or or even in some cases no breaks at all 
and they could that could be different rehearsals across multiple different ballets so at any one point in time they could have between like three and five different ballets that they're rehearsing and then in each of these ballets you can see a range from like one and i've seen up to nine different castings in a single ballet so you're thinking like that individual has to learn nine different roles potentially in that single ballet and then has multiple ballets that they're involved in as well. So you can start to see like how these rehearsal periods start to build up really, really quickly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then they might even have a performance in the evening as well. So like it can be really challenging when they're really in the thick of it and, and they're cast in a lot of different things to, to manage their workload. So at their peak time, their, a typical day could look like six hours straight of rehearsal then followed by a two-hour performance in the evening so that's eight hours worth of performing and jumping and everything yeah and, and yeah and like realistically it's longer than that because their captured time in the building could be up to 12 hours if they come in do a bit of a warm-up in the morning at you know 10 a.m before they start mm. class and just do if they've got any prehab stuff that they need to do or, or whatever it might be you know, and they finish rehearsal, say, at 6 p.m., show starts at 7.30, they can't really go home. They have to be around or in the building, and then they might not finish till 10.30 at night, and then they've got to get home and eat and whatever else. So it, they, the captured time as well, is it's not just the working time. So it's like mm. a really demanding role, a uh, really demanding job. Yeah, certainly. So keeping that in mind, how do you provide your S&C support? Where does it fit in? <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a day like that, it probably doesn't. <laughs> yeah. um, so th thank God that's probably our worst case scenario. And, and, and we don't have every single day that looks like that. But in terms of like the S&C support, I think there's like, there's almost, it, it's probably worth to start with the fact that it's not compulsory. So like, which is probably quite untraditional when you think of elite sport and, and professional environments like that where it's like scheduled into their day so they don't have that luxury at this point it's a relatively new development in their training we're talking the last five to ten years it's been introduced more formally at least so then they have to essentially schedule themselves in for additional physical development if they wish to develop in those areas and that results in like a, a segregation of the cohort so you get some people who who won't engage in that and that percentage of the cohort is getting smaller and smaller every year and then you'll get almost like different levels of engagement then with the people who do so you'll get people who potentially engage on like the microcycle level so they'll come in off the cuff any given day and that's probably the most challenging because you're having to consider like what that individual needs in that moment in time which can be quite challenging to do on the fly so that might be relating to some understanding of like what their profiling data looks like what their goals at the start of the season were and, and kind of where they are at that point in time in achieving those but then also like what's their week look like so understanding what their rehearsal schedule is like for that day what it's been like the previous couple of days and what it's like looking like in the next couple of days and then whether they've got any performances dotted around that week as well because if they need to develop strength you're not going to heavy squat someone if they've got a big performance that night which requires you know them to be on center stage and potentially doing up to 100 jumps in less than six minutes in max <laughs> effort like it, it requires like a, a conversation and, and like trying to understand like what that individual needs versus what you should provide with that individual at that point in time 
And then you've got people who might engage on like the mesocycle level. So you have people who understand like that they have like a really challenging role coming up and they want to address that like well in advance. And we can have a discussion around what that role involves. We might have a good understanding of that role. We might not. And then we can potentially derive some tests that that might sort of give us a better understanding of that particular individual's sort of physical capacities and that might help or facilitate some programming or or programming decisions around Mm. that sort of mesocycle whether it's cardiovascular whether it's jumping whether it's strength whether it's upper body strength we might do some specific testing to kind of facilitate that and then they'll go away and they'll either do that with us alongside us and book in and, and have specific sessions or sometimes complete some of those sessions independently as well and then like most rarely you have like some dancers who might engage on the macro cycle level and there's been a few cases of this where dancers we we can essentially plan out their entire season probably more senior dancers are capable of doing this because they know what they're going to be cast in early and then you can identify like blocks or free time or opportunities in the season where there might be a good opportunity where they can like really push in and and drive some sort of physical adaptation and then other opportunities where you might have to think about recovery and pulling back and and just maintaining. Yeah, I guess there's like levels at the moment of engagement and my idea was moving towards a scenario where it's accounted for in their schedule and it's scheduled as part of their day. And and even if that's still not compulsory initially, but it's scheduled into their day. So they then have the choice to make whether they choose to go to S&C and they've got some protected time for that or they choose not to engage. That's up to them. But I think that would be a nice next step to kind of move towards. But from an organizational perspective, it's just really challenging. The Royal Ballet have a really ambitious production, a series of productions that they want to get through a season and they don't have infinite financial resources. It's challenging. It sounds like everything has to be very individualized because you've got the different ranks, you've got the different engagement, everyone has the different requirements anyway. So your approach to programming is going to be so varied between people. So if you found that quite challenging it sounds very much like oh that's you've accepted it and found ways of uh, accommodating that to maximize the snc support that you can give yeah definitely i mean like pre-covid we'd be doing a lot of individual based sessions and and that would be the process that we would go through i guess post-covid we've had quite a nice opportunity to experiment with some different aspects of this and we've put on more group-based sessions that are scheduled into their day while it's been quieter and there's been opportunity to do so and this has proved to be quite successful during those quiet periods and that's been given the opportunity to give some more general programming that's perhaps not as individualized but we've seen like pretty good development of whether that's bilateral developing just general strength qualities or specific strength qualities around like hip flexor strength and their ability to lift their leg and or calf raise strength so that's provided really useful and it would be nice to see that sort of translate into what Mm. a full season looks like. But even now, as we approach, I guess, normality, you can start to see that people start to drop off that as they get busier Mm. and busier. And it's just very challenging for them to maintain. I know that everyone's program is going to be individualized and you've had the luxury of being a bit more general with group sessions recently. But what types of strength training have you employed with these particular athletes and i don't mean that in a sense of what kind of qualities do they need is there because that's still quite broad is there a particular style of training that you've found yourself utilizing more because of the needs of these athletes 
Yeah, I think it's probably, yeah, it, it's quite a broad question. I'll answer it as best I can without going off on too much of a tangent. <laughs> uh, but there's a high risk that that could happen. So I guess like, you know, fundamentally, I try to lean into or, or maybe that's just my preference because it's my background, but developing sort of bilateral strength qualities. However, I think that like my rationale kind of sits into the fact that they spend most of their time just with their body weight. And most of the time, they do quite a lot of jumping as well. So I think having some sort of external load through like broad ranges of movement is like pretty valuable for them. And and that's going to give them the most bang for their buck. But then within that, you'll have some people might not tolerate that. We get a lot of lower back issues with the men, for example. So like axial loading isn't always tolerated. So then mm. thinking of other ways that we can get the same stimulus is also important. And then I guess second to that, what are the other strategies we have available to us looking back on sort of some of the busier days that we might have and and like how we might achieve some sort of adaptation or some sort of load on, on a busier day without inducing too much fatigue. We might look at like various different trunk training. And that's, I guess, underpinned with the sort of high risk of lower back injury that we see is in ballet. There's like a really nice paper by like Alex Wolf and, and a couple other practitioners that kind of looks at like a whole variety of ways of looking at trunk training, whether that's like functional or non-functional. And essentially all that means is on feet or off feet. I typically don't like those terms, but they define Mm. them quite well. And then like Mm. pillar conditioning versus like segmental rotation or control. So playing around with different variations of training the trunk is quite a nice way to to offer some S&C support without inducing sort of additional fatigue that you might get from heavy bilateral squat training. I guess like one other element is probably like jumping and landing as well, but I'm always hesitant with jumping and landing because I you know whereas I think it's like a super important physical quality for them on one hand to be like extremely powerful and and efficient with their jumping but also land really well and and be really considered with like how they manage the volume of jumping and and how they're landing to facilitate that as well but i'm just i guess i'm just conscious of like if they've done a huge volume of jumping already that day then adding more jump volume on top of it might not always be the best thing for them or or give them the most bang for their buck Mm. it's interesting you you said the like bilateral strength and the trunk training before relating it to the jumps because I can imagine people thinking oh okay ballet dancers they do a lot of jumping aesthetic jumping okay that's what we're going to work on but really it feels like the key things that you go to first are developing certain qualities so they can tolerate the amount of jumping that they have to do in rehearsals exactly yeah that's nail on the head, really. Whereas it is a primary quality of them, they do so much of it as part of their rehearsals. Some of Joe's research has been looking at putting accelerometers on them and, and counting jumps. And before Joe's PhD came about, we would watch productions and count the number of jumps of different <laughs> roles ourselves so we wow. could get an understanding of, you know, what the requirements were. And there's a good study out there as well by Matt Wyan and, and his group who have looked at, like, I think they did like 80 different productions and counted the number of like discrete actions of ballet dancers and contemporary dancers. And they found like a really high rate of jumping. I think it was like five jumps per minute. And albeit there were like really big variations between 
different roles. So they had like quite big standard deviations. If you've got any role that is up to five jumps per minute, or sorry, it's like that much higher than that, then it's it's quite challenging. And and like one of the one of the examples that springs to mind is like this role. It's called Bluebird, and essentially they would do I think about 106 jumps over the course of like six or eight minutes on stage or something. And it's just like some like in the jumps, they're not simple either. They're not just up and down they're like extremely technical as well so yeah like a big part of it is ensuring that they're able to tolerate that jump volume well my knees hurt just hearing about that (laughs) 106 jumps in six minutes i'd be a mess on the floor (laughs) if i ever attempted that (laughs) and that actually nicely leads us back to or leads us towards injury because you think, oh, mm. six hours a day plus rehearsals over a long period of time, like surely that's the opportunity or for injury to occur is pretty high. And I know this ties in with your PhD work. So it'd be interesting to know a bit more about what types of injuries are common. You've already said lower back issues for the men. Uh, yeah. So what type of injuries are common within ballet? Yeah. Yeah. We've just done like a big five-year paper on it, which um, just got published, which is great. And I guess one of the nice things about that paper as well is we didn't just look at time loss injuries, which is like the most typical variable that's reported or outcome variable that's reported. We also looked at medical attention injuries, so which was essentially any injury that they go and see a physiotherapist about, even if they don't have any associated time loss and, and time loss being defined as like a restriction or being completely off any dance related activity for at least 24 hours. So then we looked at a bunch of different things, but I guess like to answer your immediate question around what kind of injuries, in women, the most common or or the highest burden, I should say, in terms of like the most common and the greatest severity, so it's a combination of those two factors, was by far posterior impingement. So of the ankle, that is. That's kind of like our sort of primary issue with women. But in general, we see a lot of tendon, ligament and joint related issues at the ankle. So although posterior impingement is is kind of number one, there's like a series of sort of foot and ankle related issues that we see. And then in the men, the number one is is actually tibial and foot stress fractures or stress reactions. So again, likely from jumping. And the sort of second one, I believe, was lumbar-related issues, which potentially can come from jumping as well, but can also come from the overhead lifting or the pas de deux stuff that they have to endure. And if, for those that don't know, the pas de deux just means a man and a woman dancing together, essentially. So they have to do like a whole variety of lifts, which can be fast or slow or carries or straight up overhead, single arm, really quite complex in some cases. Is it because of the technical way of landing and jumping that may lead to these specific types of injuries? I mean, I know tibial, so shin bones type of stress fractures, constant impact. You can understand where they come about. But is there something about the way, the technical way that they land because of the artistic nature of what they do, which may predispose them to these specific injuries? Yeah, that's kind of our our thought process. And Part of the reason for some of my research, I guess, is trying to understand that in a bit more detail. So there's one pretty good paper that's by Imura and they did on some Japanese, professional Japanese dancers. And they essentially investigated the difference between jumping in a parallel position, so feet pointed straight ahead, and a turned out position, so feet maximally externally rotated with the heels together, which is like a classical ballet position. And they found that 
there were fundamental differences in the mechanisms of how they were jumping or, or the positions in which they were hitting when they were jumping. So for example, they found like more input from the distal lower extremity or, or the ankle compared to the hip in the turned out position compared to the parallel position. And then when they were in that turned out position, they were also more upright with the chest. They went through less hip flexion. So we're potentially seeing like more upright and stiffer landings but to maintain a ballet position and, and what's deemed as like more aesthetic position than what you might typically see in sporting arena where they can go into like really deep hip flexion patterns and go through a lot of trunk flexion. So I guess like part of our research is then looking to kind of expand some of that to some of the other classical ballet positions and do a bit of replication research and see what we find. See if we see similar findings where it's more ankle dominant they're more upright in their torso in these ballet positions than they are in a sort of more traditional parallel position. Do you find you make a lot of changes to your S&C delivery because of regular injuries? So we talked about developing certain physical qualities to aid and build tolerance to help them with all their jumping. But if they get injured, do you find that it's like, okay, we've got to work now to try and get you back onto the stage? That's like the primary focus. And do you, do you find that happens a lot? Yeah, absolutely. And there's like, again, there's levels to this as well. So you might have some individuals who are self-managing, but not self-managing, that's probably not the right term that because they are seeing physiotherapy and getting physiotherapy support but but they're largely doing everything that's required of them from a dance perspective but for example they might have like a little bit of pain in their shin so in our snc sessions we might avoid additional jumping and just move straight into sort of some strength work and then all of the accessory work after that and then likewise you might have someone who has a back related issue where we might have to make they might to not tolerate axial loading particularly well when we might have to make amendments to the program so it's more unilateral focused so there's not just like a heavy weight and a barbell going straight down their spine and they can tolerate that generally a lot better so that's like in snc sessions and then from a like rehab perspective as well we've got there's instances where people might have injuries that are they're pretty functional so they're like able to like almost do everything but there's they're still like reasonably severe where they we can't just crack on with everything so they have to be a little bit more considered so we've seen a couple of those where for example like a pubic stress response in the groin, whether it's a sort of a vertebral end plate irritation or something like that. And so then we might have to give them like a really bespoke program, S&C program, Pilates program, physio program. So like have a real interdisciplinary approach around those individuals that kind of facilitates their return because they might have like really ambitious goals to get back on stage for a specific performance, which might be like a really featured role and a really great opportunity for them to like show off how some of their skills and some of the hard work that they've been putting in and kind of some of the work that we'll do in the healthcare department will underpin that. Everything you've said today, it just sounds really cool. And I can imagine a lot of people listening to this, it might be an S&C coach, it might be a personal trainer, some form of coach might think, I would love to work with ballet dancers. What would be your recommendation for someone that wants to get involved with physical performance support for ballet? Well, uh, you know, it's still relatively new in dance. So I think mm. the opportunities, there's not as many opportunities as there are in sport. But I think that's changing. More and more dance companies are recognizing the value of 
this kind of work. And I think more and more dance companies will find funding to get practitioners in to to facilitate the supplementary training that these dancers need to perform and rehabilitate if they do become injured. I guess like the in terms of like actually on the ground, I think if you're probably from a dance background, I think you could probably you do well to go into a sporting arena and get experience outside of dance because I think there's a lot of value in in what the sporting world has to offer the dance science industry. That's my background. So that's just perhaps a biased opinion. But if you're coming from a sporting environment, I would say like you just, you need to learn about the culture. You need to understand, yeah, what they do, whether that's looking to the research to understand like what their jobs actually entail, but also just on an interpersonal level, just understand the culture of ballet, understand the culture of different dance genres. And I'm ignorant to a lot of different dance genres compared to ballet, because I've spent most of my time in ballet. But I think that that's really important. But I think that that's probably the same in any sport. You need, you need to understand what those individuals are going through. You need to understand what the demands are. And then once you do that, you can you know deliver the best practice you, you possibly can to those people. Yeah, that's really good advice. I definitely recommend anyone getting involved with ballet. I haven't had the opportunity to work in ballet myself but i'm definitely slightly jealous of you adam so you can live vicariously through me i have been doing that for the last two years i think with the phd (laughs) i just want to finish off with some of the questions that we got from people on instagram posting them through our first one is from becky owen and she said how do you optimize recovery with so little time for recovery Yeah, it's really difficult. And it's like, I'd say it's one of the primary issues that we we face in ballet healthcare and in professional ballet on the whole, like the demands of their schedule are are so extreme. So they are really lacking time to do anything. And often I generally default to like the sort of three main pillars of recovery, whether that's sleep, hydration and nutrition. So having regular conversations with people about those areas and trying to get an understanding of whether they're hitting those things first before recommending like additional or supplementary methodologies. And like we do offer those things, like we have lots of different elements of performance nutrition in our healthcare suite that we offer them. So whether that's like snacking to facilitate if they have short or non-existent rest breaks and protein powder and hydration powders and that sort of thing. We have like equipment to facilitate recovery, like the recovery boots, or some people might know them as like Normatex, but we've got the recovery boots and then reinforcing positive recovery strategies like stretching and mobilization and and cooling down and and warming up correctly before and after each session that they might have to do and then in some extreme instances where we have where we notice that the schedule is really busy like we'll have open and frank discussions with artistic staff about either the group collectively and kind of what their workload looks like or on an individual basis because like some of the things that we'll measure and we'll track and we have dashboards for are looking at like rehearsal time and if we see like big spikes in individuals rehearsal time we can then look at like what productions those are across and then how that is structured the following week and see if there's any spaces where that can be reduced and then like I guess on a similar thread to that like there's been occasions where we've had conversations with artistic staff about potentially pushing back the morning class so then if they've got a really late performance or they've had multiple late performances in a row they might not be getting a full eight hours because if they finish at 10 30 and 
take a little while to get home and just take some time to unwind and eat food. Then they could go to bed in the early hours of the morning and then they have to be back up and in the building for 10.30 again the next day. So if we can push that class time of 10.30 back potentially a couple of hours and give them a bit more time to to be in bed and and to get some sleep, then then that can also facilitate it. But it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Shows how broad your role is. is isn't just, oh, I come in and give some you know, physical training. It's trying your best to help organize their lifestyle to make sure that the the training they get is correct and the recovery they get is sufficient. Yeah, definitely. I, I would say like because of the financial demands in ballet and, and like I fully appreciate that the Royal Opera House have more resources available to them than a lot of other dance companies. But, you know, you I think you always have to strive for more and strive for better and I think when you're in a smaller team or a relatively smaller team it's still 20-30 practitioners but across potentially 100 dancers I think you have to show your breadth of practice to really facilitate the overall performance of your department. Yeah definitely and then the final question we have is from Kieran Moore is there any targeted additional conditioning alongside performing? So I'm thinking maybe you might be thinking of rather than strength work that we've discussed more mm. uh, anaerobic, aerobic type conditioning. Yeah, definitely. I'd say that's probably more on an individual basis and the methods can be quite varied. We're quite space limited as well. So we've got a couple of concept rowers, a couple of bikes, uh, a couple of cross trainers. I'm a big fan of mass testing, so maximum aerobic speed. So I, I quite like doing generally with the men if they're up for it doing a five minute time trial on the rower and then using their mass score to then program specific intervals that are appropriate for them with the distances all counted for and then with the girls I'd say they're probably they don't particularly enjoy rowing most of them so I'd say they typically do a bit more conditioning work either on the bike or the pre-corp and I guess with with those we can do time trials on the bike which can be quite useful just as a measure of kind of where they're at but also I think generally like some heart rate variables and and just keeping an eye on that and and giving them some general interval-based training if they're engaging in a program can be quite useful as well. No wicked it sounds like you often hear of MAS work or maximal aerobic speed often being used in team sports, hockey, rugby. It's quite interesting that you're using similar principles uh, for your work in ballet. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's really applicable. It's just it's just so fast and convenient, and it gives you really applicable data that you can use to program, which is always helpful. I think if you can if you're collecting data that can directly feed into your programming and your programming decisions, then you know it's a bit of a no brainer for me. Well, mate, that was brilliant. It was great to get a real good insight into what happens at the Royal Ballet and your role as an SNC practitioner with such elite dancers. I have one more question for you. If you got to choose a guest on the Progress Theory, who would you choose? Oh, <laughs> okay. I mean, I've got a handful of people that I think are good. Some of the people that I've worked with or that I've interacted with in my career, and you'll know a lot of them, like whether it's like a John Goodwin or Dan Clever from St. Mary's, they've been, you know, invaluable in my development personally. But then outside of that, there's some really great people, like whether it's Greg Retter, who is now the head of GB Performance Services, who was the previous clinical director of of the Royal Ballet, or someone Mm. like Fionn McPartland, who's the head of the intensive rehab unit at Bisham Abbey. 
someone like Alex Wolf, who used to head up sort of the SNC for GB rowing and, and is quite high in the EIS. Mm. The list can, can go on and on. <laughs> yeah, excellent minds within this particular space. Yeah, certainly. Some, know, some I know, some that I've never met Fionn. But uh, the others mm. I have met, I, I would love to get them on here, actually. They'd have so much insight uh, and experience to share on this podcast. So I'll definitely add them to the list. Yeah, for sure. That was perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the Progress Theory. And uh, I'll catch up with you soon. Nice one. Thanks for inviting me on, Phil. Cheers, mate. Thank you to Adam Matusi for coming on to the Progress Theory and talking about his work providing SNC support for the Royal Ballet. It was great to truly understand the commitment and how much training an elite ballet dancer does for their art, and even more interesting to see how the setup at the Royal Ballet works in order to provide them with the support they need to ensure peak performance. I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on some key areas which really stood out to me. Firstly, just how much training the elite ballet dancers do, especially if they are a principal dancer often doing multiple rehearsals for multiple shows throughout the week. On top of that, the principal dancers may have performances which consist of sequences involving an intense number of technical jumps in a short space of time. This just makes you appreciate how elite these athletes are and how robust they need to be to tolerate that volume of jumping and landing. Secondly, because of differences in schedule between dancer rank, every dancer needs their own individualised approach to support coming from the staff. This seems like a difficult balancing act, but I love how Adam categorised the different approaches each dancer takes for SNC support. He clearly knows his athletes, knows when to provide support, and when to try and help work with them and with the team to change a dancer's schedule to ensure they get enough recovery. And finally, Adam's research into injury at the Royal Ballet has been incredible and I highly recommend checking out his research, which I've linked to in the show notes. I find it fascinating how certain injuries appear to be more common and can be influenced by the role of the performer and possibly due to the technical demand of the artistic scale of jumping. This highlights how important it is to understand your sport and its culture if you provide rehab or SNC support, as this knowledge is essential for bringing dancers back to full fitness after injury. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if ballet performance is a career you wish to pursue, there is plenty of information here to help you head in that direction and achieve your goals. As always, please follow at The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube. It would be awesome if you could also leave us a review and share this episode on your Insta stories to help grow the show. We'll see you in the next one. Hold up. 